For one of Marcella's significant birthdays, we went to the Fogo Island Inn. It is an extraordinary building on an island off the east coast of Canada. I mean, Google it because you just want to need to see this to see what an amazing building it is. It just kind of glows on the landscape. But more than just being an extraordinary building, being there is an extraordinary experience. It's a hotel built into the rock of the island and into the roots of the community. We celebrated Marcella's birthday in a hot tub, looking at stars, going snowmobiling with some of the island's inhabitants, eating locally foraged food, and hiking through waist-deep snow. Now, I've stayed at more than my fair share of hotels in my time. Almost all of them, deeply unforgettable, a few utterly terrible, and one or two, maybe three, super fancy. But the Fogo Island Inn is the first and only one that comes with a mission to save the world. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Zita Cobb is the founder and CEO of Shorefast, a charity organization that, through business, preserves culture, sustainability, and economic well-being of local communities. And one of those businesses, one of those communities, is the inn in which we stayed, and Zeta is its innkeeper. Now, <laughs> Zeta will tell you, she also, as well as being an innkeeper, one of the great job titles, appears to transcend time and space. Well, maybe the best way uh, to say my story, I'm 64 years old to give a sense of time. And I jokingly say, but it's not really a joke, that I'm 64, but I have lived in three centuries. I am not a vampire. Now, I've never interviewed a vampire before, but even if I was looking for one, I'm not sure I'd find one as interesting as Zita. She was born and raised on the aforementioned Fogo Island off the northeast coast of Newfoundland and Labrador, one of Canada's great provinces. We jokingly also say it's far away from far away. And I grew up there, born in 58, in the 60s, when we still didn't have electricity, still didn't have running water. Well, some places on the island still don't. Um, and my parents couldn't read and write. And we had very fragile health care. And it was almost a perfect life. It was a time capsule of another century. And Zita's family lived a life that reflected a much earlier time. My father, seventh generation Fogelander, was a fisherman, and we were inshore fishing people. And that particular construct um, has, has it, had endured for centuries. We fished very close to shore in small wooden boats that we built ourselves. And it was a life that had a lot of hardship and a lot of dignity. When I was 10, just about 10, the worst, so I call that the 19th century. And when I was 10, the worst of the, of the 20th century came down on top of us mm. in the form of the industrialization of the fishery. And monster industrial ships appeared uh, from everywhere on earth, really. Uh, they, we could see them from the hill behind our house. Yeah. And they took just about every last fish out of the ocean. And my father and all of the other people who lived on the island could not figure out what kind of a logic system was at play here that would cause someone to fish day and night till all the fish were gone. Right. So that was the 20th century. And my career, so my father actually finally figured out, even though he never had a bank account, never had money in his life, he traded his fish, he, he never understood economic logic. 
he figured out they must be turning the fish into money. That's <laughs> the only explanation he could come up with. And so when yeah. I was about maybe say 11 or 12, he said, you've got to go to school and you've got to figure out how this money business works. Mm. Because if you don't, it's going to eat everything we love. So I studied business and my career was in wave division multiplexing, which are the little optical pieces that enable the digital age, what yeah. we're doing right now. Yeah. And so those are the three centuries. So I think that kind of says who I am. And then of course I moved, uh, my career was in that. And then I went back home about 15 years ago yeah. to start a series of projects, one of which was the Fogo Island. How do you feel that the landscape of Fogo Island has shaped you? Oh, you know, as a Newfoundlander, maybe I'm sure other people on earth feel the same, but we're made of the place. And in Newfoundland and Labrador, we never say, you know, I'm from Fogo Island or I'm from Comfort Cove or I'm from St. John's. You say, I belong to Fogo Island. And if you meet mm -hmm. someone in conversation, you say, where do you belong? And I think for visitors, it's sometimes a bit jarring when someone says, where do you belong? Because it's sort of... Yeah especially in these days, it's like, well, you don't belong here, but really it's meant like everybody belongs to a place, like the, to a land, to a physical place. Yeah. And there is, I think place is the most important thing. It holds our history. It holds our relationship. I mean, the quality of our lives is the quality of our relationships mm. and place holds our relationships, especially those with the past. It holds our relationships with each other. It's how we come together. I think meaning is created in shared spaces and shared endeavors placeholds nature. Yeah. It's just everything. You know, my brother worked in the indigenous communities in Australia. And when I visited him there, the greeting was, who are your people? It's <laughs> not who are you. People, no, who are your people? You're like, you're going, oh, well, I'm related to here. I'm part of this clan. And, and you know, it's that setting of a context rather than a, a claiming of an individual spot. It's so funny. That's a Newfoundland thing. Your wife will know this too. And maybe you've sure. experienced it in Newfoundland. If you meet a Newfoundlander, no matter where you are in the world, it's like, well, who's your mother? Yeah, exactly. And, and like we are determined. To, I mean, we're only half a million people in the entire province. And yeah. so we're determined to find out we are definitely going to be related somewhere. Yeah. Her, her family names are Bungay and Lawrence. And every time you meet a Newfoundlander, there's a connection to be made somehow. Yes. Yes, yes. Very important, these connections. So Zita, when was the first moment you knew you needed to leave the island? Oh, well, I mean, really, probably when my father said, you've got to go get an education because we have right. high school on the island, but there's no university. And so that's when um, I started to realize my life was going to take a different path. But I also yeah. grew up obsessed with sailing and obsessed with this islandness that we we all shared and thinking always about the people that I am descended from arrived on Fogo Island from the from England, from basically Devon and Dorset, and mm. from Ireland. Mm. And they crossed that ocean. It always fascinated me that I want to cross back. I want to know what <laughs> they what they did. So it wasn't like an awful, terrifying thing to leave. Yeah. Although it was painful, but I I maybe I always knew I wanted to see what was on the other side. And what did moving away give you? Well, it was shocking uh, to come. I came to Ottawa. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, uh, electricity everywhere and running water. <laughs> I mean, that was all very shocking. Uh, but also, it, it gave me um, a 
first of all, I was always trying to make sense. I mean, that's what humans do. We try to make sense of how do social relations work mm. in a in a city? And I kept trying to remake or find the community that I figured must be here yeah. somewhere. And in and so like I live in an, I was a student. I lived in an apartment building in central Ottawa. And so, you know, I found myself trying to make community in this apartment building, which I think some people found a bit shocking that, you know, <laughs> you, the neighbors would be knocking on the door, things like that. And so, <laughs> it, took, it took a long time for me to realize, okay, you make friends mm. and they might live in different places and you come yeah. together. But I don't know that I've ever really fully reconciled myself to that. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, having moved away and then coming back, what did, what did you see with new eyes? You know, when I was growing up, all this hardship and fear of loss, like the island was almost resettled. I mean, if it wasn't mm. for art, if it wasn't for the Fogel process, and if you Google the Fogel process, it all reveals itself. Um, you know, people who came to the island who were filmmakers and academics who didn't have any answers about the collapse of the cod and what should happen. But what they understood was that there's value here in this mm. place. And the people here in this place might not have the language of, you know, government administrators who were trying to figure out what to do in, in, in this kind of economic collapse, but they had ideas around what might happen that could allow them to stay there. And, and I think through art that was activated. So I think when I gr was growing up, I mean, I remember people saying things like, there's nothing, just going to be nothing here, but the gulls, we're all going to be gone <laughs> because, you know, a hundred, like 120 Newfoundland communities or Newfoundland Labrador communities were resettled. Right. And just say what that means to people who that don't means know. That people were given, well, small amounts of money uh, by the government of the province mm. under the Resettlement Act to leave where they lived and never come back. Yeah. And some of them uh, moved their houses if they could to the mainland. All the outer islands were, most of the outer islands were resettled for sure. And some of, the, I mean, I don't really blame I mean as you we can sit here now and say well what were they thinking or come on we were dealing with hundreds of communities with right no no running water no health care and now suddenly no fish like really right. it was a big problem so I understand that but there's a Newfoundland song called the Outport People which has a beautiful line that talks about this time and about people being uprooted like this and the line is they moved without leaving mm -hmm. and never arrived mm -hmm. and this I pain and you see it around the globe now people being uprooted from place uh, has consequences but I would say being away and coming home I certainly saw I mean isn't that what T.S. Eliot's four quartets you know uh, I saw Fogo Island with newer eyes new eyes right. and it's yeah it was more beautiful to me than ever and more precious than ever and I think I came home with some of the tools of the globalized world of, of how you function in a globalized economy and started to see things um, as having potential that before I saw had value, but I couldn't figure out how to, how to release the potential in it in a way that could give us economic dignity. Yes. I love that reference to the, the Newfoundland song, um, the sad reference around, you know, leaving but never arriving. How did you know that you'd arrived home? What did that feel like? You know, I, I never lost touch with home when I'm away. Mm. There's another kind of Newfoundland joke about how can you tell the Newfoundlander in heaven? 
<laughs> he's the one moaning and groaning because she wants to go home. <laughs> so we never really let go. Yeah. And I always went back and forth, but and it was and every time I went home, say for a vacation or visit, mm. it was always painful leaving, and I could never see how I could live at home because right. what was I going to do for a living? And when I finished my career and went moved back, it was like the place just opened up. I felt as I walked on the landscape, the rocks just lifted an inch to meet me. Oh, beautifully put. <laughs> yeah, beautifully put. Um, Zito, tell me about the book you've chosen to read for us. I have chosen a book that uh, I, I've been waiting all my life for this book. <laughs> <laughs> it's called The Third Pillar. Beautiful. By yep. an economist named Raghuram Rashad. <clears throat> and he, this book came out in 2019. So all of these things we've been talking about have been floating around in my life since I've been aware of being alive. Uh, it, 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 as I went through my career in business, you know, I was the chief financial officer of a publicly traded company. And what do you do with places like Fogo Island? Mm. And are, are they all destined to be lost? And, and right. or, you know, do we just all need to be modern people? And how do we reconcile the things that have inherent value with their economic value? Right. So these are big questions, and we're we're all all of us living in those questions every day. Um, and so, my only critique of this book, and I've said it to Dr. Rajan because I have met him at least on Zoom, is that why didn't you write this sooner? <laughs> uh, anyway, exactly. his um, so he used to be head governor of the Federal Reserve Bank of India. That's right. And he worked at the IMF, and he's at the University of Chicago now. And so, when I read this book in 2019, I I remember every muscle in my body kind of relaxing, going, finally, I have a dream <laughs> for all of these questions. Right. So it means everything to me, this book, and it has provoked our work since then. Oh, what a gift. It, um, it knowing, is. knowing this is such an important book to you, how did you end up choosing the pages to read? This took more time than it probably should have. Like. <laughs> um, and so they're, they're a little bit disjointed, but I wanted to read enough sections, but I promise it only adds up to two pages. That's great. That gives listeners a sense of the whole, because I Perfect. think to do justice to his work, we need to at least give people a glimpse of the whole. That's lovely. Zita, I'm, I'm excited to hear what you've chosen to read for us. Over to you. This book is about the three pillars that support society and how we get to the right balance between them so that society prospers. Two of the pillars I focus on are the usual suspects, the state and markets. Many forests have been consumed by books on the relationship between the two, some favoring the state and others markets. It is the neglected third pillar, the community, the social aspects of society that I want to introduce into the debate. When any of the three pillars weakens or strengthens significantly, typically as the result of rapid technological progress or terrible economic adversity like a depression, the balance is upset and society has to find a new equilibrium. I will argue that many of the economic and political concerns today across the world, including the rise of populist nationalism and radical movements on the left, can be traced to the diminution of the community. The state and markets have expanded their powers and reach in tandem and left the community relatively powerless to face the full and uneven brunt of technological change. Importantly, 
The solutions to many of our problems are also to be found in bringing dysfunctional communities back to health, not in clamping down on markets. This is how we will rebalance the pillars at a level more beneficial to society and preserve the liberal market democracies many of us live in. According to the dictionary, this is a very important part, a community is a social group of any size whose members reside in a specific locality, share government, and often have a common cultural and historical heritage. This is the definition we will use, with the neighborhood, or the village, municipality, or small town being the archetypal community in modern times, the manor in medieval times, and the tribe in ancient times. Importantly, we focus on communities whose members live in proximity, as contrasted with virtual communities or national religious denominations. We will view local government, such as the school board, the neighborhood council, the town mayor, as a part of the community. The community still plays a number of important roles in society. It anchors the individual in real human networks and gives them a sense of identity. Our presence in the world is verified by our impact on people around us. By allowing us to participate in local governance structures, such as parent-teacher associations, school boards, library boards, and neighborhood oversight committees, as well as local mayoral or ward elections, our community gives us a sense of self-determination, a sense of direct control over our lives, even while making local public services work better for us. Importantly, despite the existence of formal structures such as public schooling, a government safety net, and commercial insurance, the goodness of neighbors is still useful in filling gaps. In the last five chapters, I have laid out a possible path to a new balance, a way to resist the seemingly inexorable diminution of the community, even while preserving the open access that marks to provide us. The intent is to build the pillars up rather than reduce them to the lowest common denominator. The essence of this new balance is inclusive localism. We can use the tools we have obtained through the ICT revolution to empower communities more, to give people more of a sense of control over their futures in the process of creating and distributing economic and political power. At the same time, I argue for a national framework that is inclusive in that all ethnicities are seen as part of the nation and the nation does not entrench differences in economic opportunity between ethnicities or classes. And the last sentence, which I love the most. Inclusive localism breaks down gigantic walls protecting privilege. And this is the best part. While encouraging tiny walls to preserve community character. Lita, thank you. That was wonderful. What's the what's the heart of this for you? What's that thing that made all your muscles relax? It's we. It was like I found the hand. <laughs> right. Like I, life never seems right if you're wrestling with an oar. Like it's got to be mm -hmm. this or that because you know when you're wrestling with an oar, you're kind of at the surface of yeah. the issue. You're not. It's not a full understanding. It's like you know that iceberg model. As you come down that iceberg. And you get to really understanding the constructs and mental models that are there. Um, you find the ants. Like I have yeah. a career in business. I love business. I think it is a a remarkable human tool. Mm. And 
I am, I mean, I'm a Canadian. I have a huge respect for government. I believe in government. I believe in in a social vision that we share, that the, the government right. rules. So this kind of, oh, anti, anti-business sentiment around the destruction of, I mean, there are so many movements, and it, like pro-community movements that become negative and, right. and see it as a zero-sum game. And I think what's right. important about Dr. Rajan's arguments is it's a positive sum game. Right. We need yeah. all of us. We're building we, the three columns. We're not removing yes. one of them. It's about balance. Yeah. Zito, where do you start? How do you start a movement? That is a darn good question. And <laughs> I am living my way into trying to find some answers. After uh, this book came out and I um, found this structure to work with, we, we Shorevast from Fogelwein and started a small year-long pilot project with four other communities across Canada to look at the simple question of what does it take to strengthen community economies? Mm. And our thesis, of course, is that if the economy is strong, then people can live the lives they choose to live. I mean, yeah. now, there's nothing like economic precarity to cause anxiety. Is you can't you can't build a life if you're walking on kelp all the time. Yeah. And so we start with the local economy, and if we're going to strengthen local economies, well, we can't do that all by ourselves. I mean, it's, we can do some things by ourselves, but right. we rely on so much of the infrastructure that comes from government. We rely on entrepreneurship and and corporate structures to get things done. So we recruited a we recruited people from governments, from from markets, and from communities to come together in this pilot project. And because we we knew what we'd learned on Fogo Island over the well, really over the centuries, but does that imply apply in Hamilton? Maybe the people in Hamilton are learning different things, or London, right. Ontario, another partner, Victoria, BC, and Prince Edward County in Ontario. Those were the five communities. And we, through that year-long process, kind of found four levers mm. that really seemed to make a difference to a community's ability uh, to strengthen its economy. And the four were, were clearly access to financial capital. I mean, if you think about our country, we are 5,162 incorporated communities and 634 indigenous communities. And probably only 500 of that, let's call it 6,000 communities, have access to financial capital because most of them are unfinanced and underbanked. Right. Well, that makes our country a bunch of stranded assets. I mean, communities are not problems, they're, they're assets. So access to financial capital is one yep. lever. Um, another is data. We basically don't have good data. We certainly don't have it in the hands of community builders. Yeah. Uh, about how our local economies are doing. I mean, much of what's collected is either at the provincial level or maybe the regional level. I, lots of data exists. It's just not where we need it for economic planning. We don't even know how we're doing. If I want to know the GDI of Fogo Island, we, we calculate it ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the lovely thing about an island. You can figure these things out. Right. Um, another believer is what are the architectures for collaboration and i actually think this is maybe the most important of the four in a way mm. how do governments and markets and communities come together to work together yeah what are the what are the collaborative structures they don't really exist Love that. and if we can't figure that out 
Mm-hmm. You know, what are we going to be doing? We're just going to go to the, go on social media, go in the press, and call each other bad names. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if take a simple thing, which should be simple, like uh, air access or air transportation across this vast country of ours. I mean, do you really do we not need another article in the Globe and Mail about you know this this entity calling that entity bad names? We can we have to do it together. And we, we need our airlines, we need our governments, we need our communities. How do we come together? And those collaborative structures, we have to build them. So that was one. And and we need them across the three pillars and right. we need them within the pillars because, okay. you know, it, whether you're talking about corporate, inside corporations, the bigger they are, there's, there's silos within those, there's silos mm. within governments, and, you know, there are silos in communities. Yeah. So the, the, these collaborative structures, I think, is the most important thing. And then the last one is in communities, especially the small and medium-sized ones, you know, we've lost our best assets to the cities, you know, our mm-hmm. people leave for employment. And I mean, not that we don't have really great people still at home, but, but we're missing some of the specific skill sets, whether around how do you set up businesses, legal skills, and accounting skills, all these yeah. things you need to navigate in a modern economy. And so how do we build that capacity back up inside the community pillars? So those are the four things. It's a, each one of those is a task, <laughs> not an insignificant task. All four combined has a complexity that must at times feel quite overwhelming. Um, you know, you, you, you've said you're a, um, a chief financial officer when you worked in your first career. Um, I'm curious to know how, how you think about risk because my guess is there's a bunch of investment, both in time and money and resources that just doesn't play out. Um, I'm wondering how you build that resilience of risk. I wonder how you think about risk in the context of how do we build community? When we were making the inn, which by the way, was not a small amount of money. No, it's incredible it, building. It's, we built it, and in, in fact, 2023 is our 10th anniversary. Congratulations. Um, and when we were making it, we or we exceeded our budget beyond anything that we could have ever imagined <laughs> for lots of reasons. You know, yeah. scope creep, and it was a bad time to be building in this remote place because the oil sector was super busy in Newfoundland at the time. You couldn't get people. You couldn't get contract. Anyway, the whole, the long and the short of it is it cost $41 million. Yeah. It's like, wow. And it's a 29 room in. And I often get the question about risk. And but the usually what people are asking me when they ask me about risk is they're asking about financial risk. Mm. My understanding of risk is broader than that. Exactly. So when they say that what a big risk to put forty one million dollars into an inn off the northeast coast of Newfoundland. And I said, Well, yeah, there for sure was a risk that it might not have worked and the money would be lost. But you know, there's a far greater risk. Mm. We were at risk of losing an entire culture. Right. Losing the knowledge that has been built up in a place over the centuries is worth way more than $40 mm. million. That's the first thing. The second thing is, now, the inn is owned by a registered charity of Canada, so there is no f- financial payback to the charity immediately the payback is in economic longer term economic and social return yeah and our planning horizon was 100 years mm. so if you amortize 41 million dollars over 100 years that's not so much 
That's right. So I think we all need to expand our, I mean, I think that's, this applies to the climate argument as well. Yes. Like money is not an asset. I mean, that's, a, that's, I think, the hardest thing for us to grapple with. We have the wrong language. Right. And so we talk about human resources and natural resources, and then people who manage money are called asset managers. Well, that's, of course, exactly backwards. <laughs> that's fantastic. I never thought of it like that. People are assets. Yeah. Nature is an asset. Money is mm. a resource. It's yeah. important, but it's just a resource, and it should be deployed in service of the assets. And if we just change that thinking a bit, we would have less money sitting in monster pools on balance sheets, running around the world looking for a return, and more deployed to strengthen, protect, and strengthen the things that are assets. Dita, how do you strike the balance between the long game, you know, a hundred years for the inn, and um, an urgency to actually get stuff done? That is probably the most important balancing act is we have to survive the present to get to the future. Mm. And so we have to do some things now. Uh, and it's funny, I was talking to a friend about this the other day, like, what is it we should all be optimizing for? Like, what's the right. simplest way to say that? Well, surely it has to be for the next generation. It has to be for the who's coming next. Yeah. And so if we don't pay attention to the business of the Ian, let's say, well, we won't, we'll be so injured economically that we won't be still standing to hand them anything around mm. values. And so, I mean, I think it's, we just have to be many minded. Yeah. And I think we can work in different time horizons at almost at any given moment. You know, it's like you, if I'm working under 100 years, I still have my eye on right now. Yeah. And if yeah. I'm working on right now, I've got an eye open. <laughs> and I, I don't think, again, I, it's an ant. Yes. I think that's a, a, a key theme here, which is like, how do you sit in the ands rather than the oars? And that's what balance is, right? That, mm. you, you know, we use this beautiful poem. You must have come across it if you read anything about our work. It's from actually a New Zealand poet, and it's called The Art of Walking Upright. And the art of walking upright is the art of using both feet. Nice. One is for holding on and one is for reaching out. And it's this, Fantastic. hold on to your place in the world, hold on to the thing that where you make meaning and where, you know, you, your, your dead people are. Yeah. And, but belong to the world. It's not go building those kinds of walls. But as Rajan says, little walls, so we can yeah. protect community character. You, you talked to, uh, mentioned a few times the importance of dignity. I'm wondering what that word means to you now, how that might have changed over time as you've done this work. When I was living through that near resettlement of Fogo Island, I witnessed people like my parents suffer terrible mm. indignity, where people, confident people, who knew how to make a living on the North Atlantic, who had deep sense of ecological and social logic, were proud people who, who took knowledge handed down to them, raised families, reached for the next generation. Suddenly, it was like someone came along and pulled the carpet out from under them. And yeah. overnight, everything they knew was not even relevant, not useful. That was the pinnacle of indignity. 
And right. and I saw the anger that comes from that. And that, of course, reverberates across generations. Dignity is, a, it's about agency. I think that's, mm. and, and every human has a right to make decisions about their own lives. That it's not as if any of us have power or control over most of what happens to us because it's mostly it's out of our control. Yeah. But we do get to make decisions. We should have the right to make decisions. And when a person's life is upended because there isn't an economic foundation, nothing good comes from that, but what is lost is dignity. Yeah. And I'm very aware of this from my childhood. I have seen economic indignity across this planet the way I did where I worked. I mean, look at what's happening now. I mean, all this vast inequality, this vast homelessness. We've thrown people out of their own stories. We, we've yeah. got a crisis of meaning. These are all indignities that start with a loss of economic agency. I'm curious to know how you keep going, Zita. Like if the inn celebrating 10 years means that you've been doing this work what, for 20 years? About, almost. Yeah, yeah. it's a yes. long time to sustain um, something which you are pushing into rather than being having the wind in your sails. Um, and I'm wondering where you, how you maintain yourself and how you maintain your optimism and how you maintain your resilience. Well, I think stubbornness will take you a very long <laughs> Do you and, be a Newfoundlander then? <laughs> yes, we were used to facing into the wind. Yeah, and and actually, when I was a child, my father used to tell us because you know it's, it can be a pretty windy place. He used yeah. to say, "Never be afraid of the wind; it's your friend. You just have to learn to work with it." And I and I don't know that I'm optimistic. That's I am in very intentional. Yes, and and I feel I've been given this gift of place, and I could see clearly as a 10-year-old that value of that. I mean, not everyone got to have the education I had. Not everyone got to have the upbringing I had. But I think I have this unique, I mean, I'm not the only person in the world, obviously, but I have a unique perspective and experience mm. of how do we reconcile economic value with inherent value? Yes. Like, I think this is my work. To, like this is what my father was telling me as a 10 year old he felt it he couldn't express it in that way I mean, he named financialization without knowing what it was right i think that and i really think that i've lived this and so i kind of know it in my bones i don't just know it because i read it in a book yes and i have this education that was you know a great canadian education that the people of canada helped pay for you know and i had scholarships from and had bursaries from companies to get me so it's like, I don't know, I think this is kind of mine to do. And I, when I look around, it's like, okay, I, there's not like a big lineup of people. <laughs> some people, we need to find them and, and knit right. them together. Um, right. But but it's, I think people who lived, as I said, I've lived in three centuries. I got to do something with this. Yeah. And I am not about to let my father down. How do you find the people to support you and become part of this? I once saw an interview, um, it was a panel that had Nelson Mandela, the Dalai Lama, and Desmond Tutu. I wasn't <laughs> in the room. That would be amazing. 
Uh, and somebody <sighs> asked them, like, how do you make this change? And and I think it was the Dalai Lama who said, well, I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to make a movement. All I know is I get up every morning and for every person I meet, I talk about what I think is important. Mm. And that that is, uh, I've been doing that for 20 years. I've already been yeah. doing it for longer. Um, and thank you for letting me talk about it with you, Michael. But I, I also, but to be um, maybe more comprehensive about the answer, we want to build something that needs a better name. So you could help us with that. But something, let, let's say a working title might be the Canadian Centre for Community Economies. Mm. In order for that, and that will be some, a structure that we want to build that's for communities, obviously. I mean, I, we have this vision that if we can put the communities at the centre of the economy, well, there's a seat for everybody around that table. Yeah. Their governments are there. Our companies are there. The three pillars. The three pillars are there. And actually, I kind of think there might be a fourth pillar, which is the philanthropic sector, private philanthropic sector, because right. there's a lot of there are a lot of a lot of people in that sector who know a lot about these challenges, have access yeah. to financial resources, and that I think about that as risk capital that we can put to to work at this. So yeah. we want to build that table we can all sit at. To do that, I think we do need to use the digital tools, mm. and we need to build a platform, you know, a digital platform that can hold the knowledge, and allow people to come together point to point, and continue to use digital tools as a reflection of the physical world. It's Because again, it's not, even though it is true that the digital t tools have upended our physical lives, Yeah, it's only because we're teenagers and haven't figured out how to use them right. I <laughs> think right. when we redeploy them, they will support our right. bodied communities. That's right. Can you, that phrase embodied communities is such a resonant phrase. Um, can you just say what that means to you? If, um, like we, we humans are meaning seeking creatures. Mm. If you took any of us and put us in a room by ourselves, we will absolutely not know who we are. We only know who we are in relationship with the other. Right. And in relationship with place, in relationship with the rock, with the wind. I mean, these are all how we sh sort of shape and, and express who we are. And if, as Dr. Rajan calls proximate communities or embodied communities, happiness doesn't come from, or happiness or fulfillment, whatever it is, or satisfaction, whatever we're, any of us are looking for, doesn't come from, oh, I'm just going to live and, you know, it, it hermetically sealed life only with people who are like me or agree with yeah. me. At all. No one's going to grow. We're just going to become distorted versions of ourselves. Right. When you live next door to people that you don't necessarily on a little island like Fogo Island, I, mean, I watched my parents with this. Many of the people they lived like on top of, because you know, in our Newfoundland communities, we're actually living very yeah, close exactly. proximity because we're all trying to. We need a spot on the ocean to go <laughs> fishing. Some of those people they did much like. Yeah. And actually, there was really a quote from a beautiful book called "A Place to Belong" the other day, and this man said, "Well." It's just not practical to not get along with your neighbor. <laughs> practical. Like your house could catch on fire. Yeah. And you might think, you know, the people you like best live in Toronto, but what are they <laughs> going to do about that? There's going to be a storm. You need your neighbors. And I think this is where our humanity starts. We mm. need each other. 
Right. And we need the, the people that are close. And I think that fact that you have to go into the, whether the grocery store or wherever you run into your neighbors in your embodied community and muck along together somehow, yeah. that's what makes us better. And I think that's what makes meaning. You know, Dan Pink's uh, new book about regret, um, he talks one of the fundamental regrets people tend to have is that they didn't reach out. Um, you know, his guidance to say, if you, if you want to lessen the regret you have in your life, be the person who reaches out. Come here. It feels like there's something in the DNA of Newfoundlanders, at least the ones that I've met, that reaching out is just an inherent part of <laughs> how you see the world. Um, but I'm wondering if there's guidance you can give the rest of us around how to better reach out, how to be the person who is the first you know that saying everybody likes to be greeted, but nobody likes to say hello. How do you how do you find the wherewithal to be the person who says hello? Well, it helps to be nosy. <laughs> and I think we are we're like Newfoundlanders are very nosy. That's true. And so who are, who are you? And how does it get to be who you are? Yeah. And you, there's a woman who works at the inn, and I'm sure you would have met her, her name is Sandra, and her father was Mr. Jack Kelly. And he had a great expression. I won't get it right because he used to say it so beautifully. He says, you might not want to like me, but I'm not going to make it easy for you. <laughs> I love that there's like six negatives in that. So you have to untangle that to figure out what it means. Yes. You're like, no, I'm determined to like you. And I'm going to figure out what it is that yeah, will make me like you. Like me. Uh, I, I think it's, and it's, this is another muscle, right? This, yeah. if once you do it first time, the second time comes easier and the third sure. time comes easier. Yeah. And I, I just think I was actually on a panel a few years ago with a very young man uh, from outside of Toronto, I mean, not Mississauga, Brampton or something. And we were talking about a similar topic around the virtual world and the embodied world. And he, he was maybe 19. So most of his life was in the virtual world. And, and, and we were debating this. And so finally he said to me, well, it's all very well fine for you because you live in a real community. Well, I said, well, where do you live? On Mars. <laughs> and, then he, and he named the community. I can't remember which one it was. And he said, but there's no community there. And I said, you just got to go. You know the thing at the front of your house that's called the door? Go through <laughs> the door. Go out. Go to the next door. Knock <laughs> on the door and say, hello. I yeah. am your neighbor. Yeah. I live next door. If you need me, this is how you can reach me. Yeah. I'd like, I'd just like to say hello. That's the, that is a community building gesture. Yeah. Beautiful. Zita, this is a conversation I would love to keep going, but I'm going to <laughs> restrain myself. But I do have a final question for you. Um, what, if anything, needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between you and me today? That when people think about communities, it is the physical distance a person can walk before dark. So no matter where people live, it doesn't have to be a small, quaint, picturesque community off the coast of Newfoundland. And Michael, I think you said you're living in Toronto. That's right. Toronto is a city of communities. They happen to be called neighborhoods. Get to know it. Walk every inch of it. Say hello to everybody you meet. Communities are everywhere. Honestly, this conversation was a little uncomfortable for me. I mean, I'm asking some specific questions about how I'm showing up in the world as a result of talking to Zeta. I'm asking myself, do I know my neighbors? The answer is no, not really. So 
how do I be the person who knows my neighbors, who knocks on the door, who says hello? I'm asking myself, do I know my community? Do I contribute to my community? Do I give to the community more than I take? And the answer again is no, not really. So how do I keep my small part of Toronto, Roncesvalles, High Park, how do I keep that part vibrant? And I'm asking myself, like Zita's dad asked her right at the start of the conversation, have I figured out this money stuff? Or is there the risk of it eating everything I love? No, I haven't, not really. So how do I deploy what I have in service to what matters? How do I build a relationship with money that is healthy and non-selfish, is the way I might frame it now? The academic Damon Santola has a really good book called Change, How to Make Big Things Happen. And a central metaphor that he deploys is that of the net, the knots connecting the threads that represent the nodes of an organization or a system where the forces of change coalesce. Zita's dad wove fishing nets to catch the cod off the coast of Fogo Island. I think Zita's weaving nets of her own, nets of change, to help rediscover what local means in a global world. And perhaps you and I can knot together some of the threads we see before us to create something that matters. Thank you for listening. Uh, Zita is an icon in Canada. I felt very lucky to speak to her. Um, a couple of other interviews to uh, mention that you might like to supplement this one. Kevin Ashton, uh, Seeking Deep Connection, definitely a great conversation. And another academic, uh, Laura Nordgen, How to Meet Resistance. Um, very interesting in kind of understanding the conversation and the interaction you have when you make change, you inevitably create resistance. How do you think about that? How do you meet resistance? For more on Zeta's work, um, and particularly the organizations, uh, surefast.org is the umbrella organization where she's uh, taking all those great initiatives about understanding how to be local in a global world. And then if you're tempted to spend some time in one of the best hotels in the world, fogoislandin.ca is the place you want to go. It's not cheap, but it is fantastic. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of this community. Um, thank you for weaving nets of change, even if that's very self-serving, even if that's writing the occasional review of the podcast and sharing it with people that you know and like. You know, as this podcast has developed and grown, I realize it is a place for people who are curious, who love books, who love self-growth, who love change, who are committed to unlock greatness in themselves and in the world, to be ambitious for themselves and for the world. So thank you for being that person. You're awesome. You're doing great.